as has been mentioned, we are continuing in our series as we walk through um, some values um, that are helping to organize us and guide us um, in this new season of Bethel community. Um, one thing that that struck me this week, and maybe this is sort of a no-brainer kind of reflection for you, but it, it struck me this week. Um, you know, in about May-ish, I thought to myself, when are things going to return to normal? That was sort of my question. I, I was sort of counting weeks and anticipating that things would sort of return to something similar to the way that life was, you know, before COVID-19 and before protest. And this week, I think in my body, I just felt like that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> like, I I don't know why it took my body so long to register that. I think it's because when you've got a family of four and you're trying to figure out what day-to-day life is, you're sort of not as maybe attuned to like, you know, meta realities as as you might want to be or, or, or whatnot. But there is a way in which I think in my body, I just felt like, oh, when when things when are things going to return to normal is not the right question to ask anymore. Um, and in and, and in my body, I just felt this other question kind of sink in as to like, how how is life being transformed? How are you being transformed? How are you being invited to live now? Um, it's sort of this new question. Um, and so I just want to affirm that in a season where you may be just dying for things to go back to normal, I want to invite us into a new question. Um, and, and it's not a question that dismisses the way that this season feels. In fact, it takes that on fully, right? Um, part of what we're going to be talking about today is the incarnational presence of God and what that means for our community Um, And individually for us, that does mean that as we encounter this season in this place, that God sees all of who we are um, and that God has an invitation for us specifically. And so as we kind of engage generally in this season and specifically around this value, I want for us to be discerning what God's invitation is. I want to read for us this value, incarnational presence, and what, and what we're kind of meaning by that. Um, we believe that following the way of Jesus means caring about the place and people we live among. We are committed to being a presence that actively loves our neighbors, lives in resistance to empire, and seeks justice for our communities, particularly those on the margins. And this is sort of an expression that gets at a an edge of of Jesus and an edge of the church that can often be a little bit uncomfortable for us. Um, and so we're going to unpack that. And in particular, I want to unpack that word empire, because that is a word that is used uh, somewhat often to describe things. And so I want to sort of give a first pass at unpacking what the word empire means and how that relates to our understanding of Jesus and our understanding of our world. And then we're going to dive into this um, kind of church conflict that shows up in Acts chapter 6. 
as some of you well know, the um, the disciples of Jesus, both while Jesus was around um, and especially after Jesus ascended, were an occupied people. They were an occupied ethnic group. And then as the disciples of Jesus kind of expanded beyond just Jews and, and sort of the Jewish space, they were essentially all of most of them an occupied group of people in the Roman Empire. Um, the Roman Empire was an empire like many others before it, um, but it had a particular edge and lasted particularly long. And what I want to do is just unpack a little bit of what the Roman Empire was like for us. So there's two aspects I want to unpack, the religion, and I want to unpack kind of the social economic realities. So the Roman Empire was led by the emperor, right? And the belief was that the emperor is sort of the human form of God's presence and ruling authority. Literally, you would address the emperor as a god. You would pray to the emperor as a god. Um, the emperor was the agent of the god's desire to enact social well-being. So any sort of sense of, of normalcy and peace in society the gods basically said the emperor is the way that we're going to do that, right? So not only do you worship the emperor and venerate the emperor, but you pray to the emperor for the things that you need. And then the empire and the emperor represent God's will for blessing of and rule over all the earth. And so in as much as the gods believed that, that, that sort of what they wanted would be what they wanted for all of creation... Um, there is a way that the emperor's presence represents not only what's good for the Roman Empire, but what's good for all the earth. Okay. Um, and so, next slide, Teresa. There is sort of a, 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 a uh, sort of theology of the empire, which is that you trust the emperor. In the midst of trusting the emperor, you also trust the rich, wealthy, and elite because they were really close to the emperor. And we'll get to that soon. They represent divine will and grace. They represent what the divine will and divine goodness look like. And you obey them or else. Part of the way that um, the empire kind of works generally is that you do, you sort of obey the will of the gods. And if you don't, then you meet, then you're met with violence. Violence was a primary tool of the empire to get people in line with God's will. So that's sort of the theology of the empire. But there's also sort of the social economic realities of the empire. And so these percentages kind of mark out percentages of people, right? So um, in the Roman Empire in the first and second century, the ruling elite, which included the emperor and the senators, who basically were like right below the emperor, represented one to two percent of the empire. And they owned most of the stuff. And then you have these retainers, which are basically the people that worked for the ruling elite. And that represented about 5% of people. And then you have these merchants who represented this soft, fuzzy middle class. And the merchants basically were the people that kind of sold the labor and the goods that the peasants and merchants made. And the peasants and merchants were the vast majority of the Roman Empire. They paid between 30 and 70% in taxes. And this basically ensured that they were at most in the working kind of poor um, and um, all the way down to just destitute. 
And then there's this special category, the degraded and the expendables, which are basically folks who could only be used for their body. They were literally slaves as well as criminals um, and the sick. Um, and I think um, this category of widows would also fit in the degraded and expendables category um, because in this society, we are in a um, kind of a patriarchal society where men end up speaking for women. And if you are a widow and you no longer have a husband that can speak for you in this space, there really is nothing that you can provide the empire. So widows did, in fact, fit in that kind of degraded and expendables spot. And so in addition to the theology of the empire, the empire also had a social order. Um, and that social order has to do with these things, right? There's this vast hierarchy we could see, right? We've got the ruling elite and the retainers, and then you got everybody else, right? And you've got a wide distance between them, a vast inequity. In addition to that, you have domination, which is to say, essentially, that that ruling elite has the ability to submit those, those peasants and merchants and expendables into control when they uh, rioted. And there were a lot of riots because the vast inequity often reached a point where there was rioting. Um, that there was exclusion. And there's the voices of the peasants and the merchants and the voices of the degraded and excluded were often not heard. And then, as we said before, there's in addition to all that, there's the coerced worship where, in a sense, you just had to worship the emperor. If you wanted to participate in the society at all, there were mechanisms, there were unions and guilds that forced you to worship Rome, to worship the Roman gods and to worship the emperor. And if you didn't, then you just wouldn't have a job. You wouldn't be involved. You wouldn't have a place to live. Um, and so these are the forces of empire. This is what empire looks like. Um, and I've been sitting with this um, this week because especially those bottom values, um, those are things that as I keep listening to activists in this day as I keep listening to um, women of color and to queer folks who are a part of this social movement going on, they have been calling out these things for years and decades and in some ways centuries. I would say that as a person who has been a part of the black church tradition, that, that these things are a normal part of how we understand um, the gospel to be coming up against these things. Um, as little as five years old, I can remember sermons about Exodus where my pastor is telling me about the ways that God wants to free us as black people in this space from these forces. These are things being illuminated in this day. Um, these, are, these are dynamics that we are maybe, some of us are seeing on display in a radical way for the first time in our lives. And for some of us, these are dynamics that are just all too familiar to our experience. Um, the church is not immune, as we might well know, to these dynamics. Um, the early church was not immune to these dynamics. Um, and we get a sense of that in Acts 6. Um, in the first five chapters of Acts the, the kind of movement of the way of Jesus is spreading like wildfire. I mean, there's just so much growth because the story of God in Christ 
is so compelling. And in the midst of that, the community that is birthed from that story is equally as compelling. And so people are joining that community. The descriptions in Acts 2 and Acts 4 are of these communities that are just, they're just bathing in the story of God. They're praying all the time. They're sharing meals. So literally no one is ever hungry. They're sharing all of their stuff. The people around the the Jesus following community really like them. And the community is just growing all the time. And so... We have what we think to be a particularly profound community. And even right before this event, there is a a moment where um, I believe Peter and John um, kind of heal someone and that lands them in jail. And then they end up being released. And the disciples are just like, yes, Lord, that you allowed us to suffer for your name. Amen. Would you do it more? Would you allow for your name to be known? And then the church grows even more, right? And then we get this moment where there is a problem. There is a big problem. It is a problem of ethnic injustice in the Jesus-following community. And so what I want to do is walk us through this problem. Because essentially, one of the things that they had decided is that there's poor folks among us, so we need to do a food distribution, Bethel community, we are not unfamiliar with what it means to do a food distribution, right? Um, Now, imagine, if you will, at our Thursday evening food pantry that in some way, all the people that spoke Spanish were being neglected. All of them. Just, Just, they weren't getting food. That would be insane, that would be immoral. That would, that would feel terrible. And that's basically what's happening. Um, all of the non-Jewish widows are being neglected. All of them. They're not getting food. And remember, they're widows. So they're in that sort of um, expendable category where already the empire says you are useless. And now the church is also saying you are useless? This is criminal. This is unjust. This cannot be. But from the beginning, you can already tell that this instance, this situation is handled in a counter-empire kind of way. And let me explain. So here's the thing. In the Roman Empire, when there's a problem, you know who you listen to? You listen to the emperor. Because the emperor knows that there's a problem. And if the emperor hasn't said it's a problem, it's not a problem. So you shouldn't complain. And if you do complain then there's a problem with you. You're the problem, right? In the Jesus community, they listen to the complaints of the people on the ground. They listen to the widows. Literally, when when, when you read um, some, some expositions of this text, it's as if there's this grumble, this grumble among the Hellenistic widows. They're like, hey, This thing is happening. This thing is happening day after day. What the heck? What's going on? And the grumble sort of reaches a roar that eventually ends up at the apostles, at the twelve. And so the apostles are attentive to the voices of the marginalized. They allow the marginalized to speak for themselves. And the reason they do that likely is because they listen to Jesus. And in the life of Jesus, Jesus is one who was never not close to the poor. Jesus always knew what the marginalized were saying. 
Jesus was living among them, with them, as one of them, with no place to lay his head, living off of the generosity of a generous community. Jesus always knew what the marginalized were saying. So because they listened to Jesus, they listened to the poor. They listened to those who were being shut out. They know what it's like to hear those voices and to engage them as a thing to be honored because Jesus honored those voices. And, it, and it's very simple, right? The reason that people listened to the emperor is because you listen to the emperor or else. The, peop- the reason people listen to Jesus is because Jesus, God in Christ with skin on, was the most generous, affectionate, compassionate force that we had ever seen. As a part of the triune God, Jesus telling the stories and revealing the goodness of God made it known to all creation that God is near and invited all of creation into God's nearness and life. It was by violence that people listened to the emperor. It was by love that people listened to Jesus and thus listened to the poor. And so the desired response in the empire is, you know, fearful obedience, whereas the desired response in this situation is loyalty to Jesus, which will always mean responding to the voices of the marginalized, because that's what Jesus did. And so what ends up happening is that in response to hearing those voices, you can almost see a sort of bottom-up response happening, um, a ground-led movement happening because the apostles are wise and they realize, oh, you know what? We should bring the whole community together. There are no secrets, right? They bring the community of the whole disciples together and in so doing, they actually admit their failure. (laughs) They're like, we have made a mistake. As the leaders of this community, there's this problem. We are responsible first for the way that this has happened. Also, we are not close enough to the pain to come up with the solution. You see what they did there? Then some people might see this as an abdicating of authority. In fact, this is actually wisdom and humility. They are saying, okay, discipleship community, you are closer to this than we are. We need you to pick the leaders that are going to address this issue. And when those leaders are finally chosen, they're all Hellenists. They're all Greek speaking. One of them, in fact, is an immigrant. You see what they do? They choose indigenous leadership to help address this issue. And as they do so, they basically are expanding what it means to have leaders in their community, right? There, there's a clear way that, you know, these seven folks are chosen to do this specific task, but they are people that, are, are, that, that have the goodwill of the people and also are full of the spirit, right? So there's a recognition that this task isn't just sort of, let's sit down and map out the logistics, This is a task where people need to be listening to the spirit who reminds them of Jesus, who will remind them of what it means to be near to the marginalized, right? As well as having the trust of people around them. 
And so the community picks seven leaders who are going to create the response for this task, um, um, for create the response for, for this situation. And I find this very fascinating um, that already in the midst of this injustice, they are beginning to lean into what it means to share power. That in fact, not only is there not exclusion, but there is inclusion, right? We had 12 Jewish um, disciples, apostles. We have a multi-ethnic discipleship community. And among those disciples, seven non-Jewish folks form a new leadership team. And what was once in the passage seen as a thing that might be a little bit distant, here are the, here are the apostles, here are the seven. By the end, as much as you've got a group filled with the spirit, with their hands laid on by the apostles, this is an act of solidarity. We are with you. We do this together. Here is the way that leadership gets shared, that resources get shared. And so, my friends, as a community seeking to be an incarnational presence, what does this mean for us? And I would say that, that I, I want to highlight two things. Um, one is to uh, listen to those on the margins, and the other is to love our neighbors. Like I said, because they listened to Jesus, because the apostles listened to Jesus, they knew that Jesus was always attentive to those on the margins of society, to those on the margins even of the temple society and those on the margins of the Roman society. Whereas the emperor was about worshiping the emperor, or the empire was about worshiping the emperor and creating a culture of hierarchy and violence and exclusion, this is a community that worships Jesus and actively ex- chooses to include those that the empire is saying explicitly to exclude. So there is this way that this community is actually sharing power. However, I want to note that I think they made a mistake. I think that they did not go far enough. Because as I read this list of people and I read the charge, it said, choose seven men. And I thought to myself, but why? Why choose seven men when widows are the ones experiencing the problem? It would have been interesting if they had chosen seven widows to lead this effort. And I just felt a little bit curious and some tension around that. I think they had a chance to actually subvert patriarchy in their space. It would have been easy to just say, well, widows are experiencing this. We're going to do the same thing. We're going to give equal authority and equal leadership power to the widows as they, in partnership with our community, figure out what it means to do justice for all. But they didn't really do that. And I feel some tension about that. And I feel like there's a way in which as we listen to those on the margins, I don't want us to make, a mis- make that same mistake, which is why I talk about loving our neighbors in a particular way, friends. Because the process of them loving their neighbors was them attempting to empower those closest to the pain of the injustice. And they almost got there. They almost got there, right? They did empower Hellenistic folks to be their leaders, right? Um, 
And so I think they were trying to do that, right? And so not only was a solution crafted and implemented, but those who would normally not have influence are given the community's trust and the apostles' blessing to lead. Um, in this way, in the midst of them kind of moving toward a really um, um, empire-subverting reality, I want to highlight that loving our neighbors is actually freely allowing our neighbors to access our resources without strings so that we can partner with them in seeking the justice that they are experiencing in their bodies, right? In this moment where there is a lot of unrest, where the voices of the disinherited are, are being heard in a way where that wasn't really as true, um, there can be a way in which we kind of say, well, you know, God bless them. Yes. Black lives matter for them over there. Yes. Um, and what I want to say is that actually loving our neighbors is us asking the question, what does it mean for us to um, actually give our resources and allow those resources to be in the hands of those doing justice? What does it mean for us to see what we have as a part of that effort and to say to our neighbors who are experiencing injustice, we want to come alongside you by resourcing you, by being with you, and by also giving you what you need. Tell us what you need, right? Let's not do the, the paternalistic thing of here's what you need in order to do justice. Let's ask, what does justice look like? Tell us. How can we be a part of that? Would you please tell us? It is in this way that we subvert the empire's attempts to implement a counterfeit gospel. When we pay attention to those who are suffering among us, we declare that we listen to Jesus who listens to the poor. And when we empower those closest to the pain to lead us in justice, we declare that power is to be shared by many and not hoarded by a few. And when their leadership and our partnership results in people being fed and justice being displayed and more people becoming loyal to Jesus in the Jesus way, we reject the logic that violence leads to peace. And we accept the story of God that says it is Jesus and Jesus's life, death, resurrection, and ascension that leads to shalom. We have an opportunity in these days to be an incarnational presence in our neighborhoods. And this is a difficult choice. Often it is a choice that is costly. And I want us to be able to engage that knowing that we are trying to listen to Jesus and pay attention to the way that Jesus oriented his body and what that means for us in the midst of our neighborhoods. And so as we consider this both in our individual lives, but also for our church, um, I want to submit to us a couple questions for reflection. The first is this, how can we pay attention to Jesus and to those on the margins in our church community and in our neighborhoods, right? Remembering that, that the church was not, um, the church as, as, as they are attempting to do this prophetic act, um, they're doing it primarily to address the injustice in their own community. We are not immune to the forces of empire. We will never be. Um, so what does it mean for us to be able um, to listen to those on the margins in our own church community as well as in the neighborhoods in which we live? And then the other question is, how can we love our neighbors by partnering with them and resourcing them in the pursuit 
of justice. And like I said, often it is our neighbors who are experiencing injustice who actually already know what it means to see relief and to see justice. And we have been trained not to ask them because we give them names like expendable. Um, we give them um, kind of categories wherein they don't matter. What does it mean for us to love our neighbors by partnering with them, listening to them, allowing them to invite us, um, giving resources as we have opportunity to do so? I'll give us a moment of reflection um, and then we will sing a song in response.